and the name that makes it happen No further introduction to the man that's worth tracking City's clapping for his relentless backing A vasty against the former team that just went packing While they're slacking and other hosts are lacking He tells it like it is on issues that nobody's tackling While he's racking, the ones who keep on grappling The listeners, some followers who get it, keep on stacking Great friend, and the type to set a trend President to see where haters with the men, there's no pretend 17 years, he along with Pierce Entertaining Southern Kelly, backed by popular demand Intense for the listeners to resonate To the hottest topics of the day, check the resume While some local leaders seem to lack the unity My man uses his voice to do what's best for the community Westwood One, catch him on the sidelines Reporting live, what we later see in highlights No holds barred, just like on his timeline Sun filter podcast, no need to follow guidelines Meet any criteria, dropping bombs like Syria Touching down, all around, connected like Expedia Coming to your speakers live from the city, yo Bestie, welcome to the Scott Kaplan Media Great friends, thank you so much as always for being here on the Scott Kaplan Solo Podcast. And I'm talking fast because I really want to hustle in to this week's podcast and this week's interview. It's with a gentleman named Jeff Perlman who wrote a book called Football for a Buck. And it's uh, about the USFL, the history of the USFL. When I was a kid, growing up in the early 80s, the USFL was going to be the competing league to the NFL. They were going after Herschel Walker and Jim Kelly, and there were lots of star players and money. And Donald Trump was one of the owners. Well, the stories that Jeff Perlman has to tell about the research he did about Donald Trump, the owner of of a USL, USFL football franchise way back when versus who President Donald Trump is today is absolutely fascinating. So I want to jump right into this. Uh, before I do, I will just say thank you very much to all of our sponsors, Callaway Golf, CallawayGolf.com. My guys at Callaway Golf love to hear me talking about how a six iron now all of a sudden goes 185 yards, whereas back in the old days, man, if I could hit that thing 165, I was lucky. The brand new Callaway technology will change your golf game. CallawayGolf.com. My friends from the Brigantine family of restaurants, as always, um, just was there the other night with my daughter who loves the Brigantine. You know my hangout is the Brig in Del Mar. And also to my friends at Gorilla Movers, GorillaMovers.com. If you're moving, moving sucks. These guys make it easy. That's all I'm saying. Here is this week's podcast interview with longtime respected sports journalist, a guy who used to work for Sports Illustrated, ESPN. This is his eighth book. This is my interview with Jeff Perlman. There you go. Okay, I, I, I think I've fixed my technical problem. <laughs> yeah, I can't believe I've, I'm. I was reading about you, mm-hmm. and I'm. I was shocked. I said, "How could I have never met Jeff Perlman?" Maybe because I'm a hermit to some degree. No, dude. You've been out there for way too long. No. And I, our paths should have crossed yeah. somewhere. Oh, I'm sure we've been in a press box. Now, wouldn't you think at some point some press box or some field or some like training camp sideline or something over the years? You know what I think? Um, you had written this article many years ago, probably the late 90s, 99 maybe? It's John Rocker. John Rocker. Yeah. And... Um, you remember John Rocker became like public enemy number one in New York, mm-hmm. right? And I was on the radio in New York City at the time. My, Who were you working for? I was working for WNEW. Oh, yeah. So Opie and Anthony were on in the afternoon, mm-hmm. and me and Sid Rosenberg. Yeah. Well, news. I'm from New York. I know. So I know this, yeah. Yeah. So Sid and I were on WNEW. And um, when the Braves came to New York to play the Mets. In 2000. Are you, are you in, before the story or after no, the story? No, after the story. In 2000, yeah. Sid and I did a bit on the air where we put a guy in a John Rocker 
jersey and we sent him on the subway oh my god from the city out to shea stadium yeah. to see what would happen that's awesome <laughs> and it turned into getting covered by all the local news stations they were going live rockers on the subway that's fantastic and, yeah and it was like the best thing we had done yeah. uh, in our very brief period of time that we were on wnew that's pretty great you know john rocker went on to sell speak english t-shirts from his website you can still probably order one you're kidding me i'm not kidding you it's interesting that, you know, I didn't plan on really talking about John Rocker very much, but, I, you know, he came from an Archie Bunker world, man, mm -hmm. and for some reason thought he could, you know, say all of that stuff back then. And I'm just curious, you know, I have the jersey, I swear to God, I bet you in this box here somewhere, I have this John Rocker jersey oh my God. from that day. That is awesome. You, We have to take a picture with this. Today. Great. Okay. Great. <laughs> Great. What was backlash of like that after you, somebody writes something, especially when you were a young writer for Sports Illustrated back then? It was a weird, weird, weird experience. It was my the funny thing is I was um, Tom Verducci was the the main baseball writer at SI, and I kind of got the scraps. I was only twenty seven. I was working my way up, and uh, they they gave me this story, and I actually wrote the story. The funny thing is somewhere out there in whatever the the land of SI. There's an original John Rocker story that I wrote, and it was very positive. It was, um, I wrote it during, it was the NLCS and Mets were playing the Braves, and they said, do a profile on this pitcher. He's really good, and he's kind of crazy. I wrote this story. I talked to his parents, but I had to do it on the quick, and I only got Rocker for like 20 minutes here, maybe 10 minutes there, um, and I wrote it, and then uh, Braves beat the Mets, went to the World Series, were swept by the Yankees. Story never ran because the World Series went so quickly. My editor said, why don't you go back and freshen it up? And I called John Rocker's agent, who at the time was Joe Sambito, the former Houston Astro reliever. And I said, I want to, uh, can I come to, Can I talk? Come down to Georgia and talk to Rocker? You're going to love John. Come on down. It's going to be great. And I spent the day with Rocker, spent probably six, seven hours with John Rocker. And that's when it, it went crazy. If the Yankees don't sweep the Braves, there's a very polite, nice John Rocker story in Sports Illustrated, and this never happens. So... <laughs> Wow. It was crazy. It was crazy. Whoa, man. I didn't realize all that. That is yeah. really cool. Well, hey, listen, I, I'm glad you came down. You live in Orange County. Is that right? I do. And you were willing to drive down to hang out here this afternoon. So thank you very much for doing that. I knew you had a John Rocker jersey. So why <laughs> would I, I, would... I, I promise you right now that before we're done, it's probably in the box over here in my office that also has like the John Wayne Bobbitt autographed oh VHS <laughs> tape <laughs> oh my god all, all the shit i've collected you got any emmanuel lewis stuff any uh you know no. <laughs> i don't know if there's any emmanuel lewis or maybe some like gary coleman nice stuff in there somewhere. ricky schroeder or yeah, yeah like the stuff that i like see this is what's so interesting about today and i i said to allison before you came in i said you know i can't believe i've never met jeff perlman i said but if i had to take a guess jeff perlman will become a phenomenal guest on the scott and br radio show after his appearance on the solo podcast i really just reading the stuff about you we want to talk about this book that you've written about the USFL. Um, I said, this guy and I, we're like the same age. We have a lot of similar interests. Mm -hmm. um, the USFL stuff, I can't wait to talk about this mm -hmm. because I find it so interesting that we're connecting on a day like today. I'm looking for my remote control because I can hear the audio in the background from CNN. There's so much craziness going on in the world right now. And here we are in San Diego and like 30 miles south is where all of this border stuff is happening. Yeah. And we're not really sure what's going on because if you're watching CNN, oh, my God, they're getting tear gassed and mothers and children and so on. And if you watch Fox, it's all bullshit. Right. You know, yeah. so what I can't even wait to hear about is Donald Trump, our president, mm. was an owner of a USFL team. 
there's got to be a million stories to tell. Yeah. What's uh, I feel like I have actually a very, I do. I feel like it's given me a very unique understanding of Donald Trump. Um, you know, he bought. Do you remember the USFL as a kid? Like, were you a USFL guy? Not only was I a USFL guy, um, I'm a, I'm a believer that there must be an alternative football league to the NFL. By the way, I'm also a believer that that league can work in in a great relationship with the NFL. I was a huge fan of the NFL Europe. Mm -hmm. I covered it for Fox for the NFL Network. That's I called awesome. games in in Europe. I was a player who signed with the NFL Europe League. So I've always wanted, I signed to play in the Arena League. Right. We tried to bring an arena team here to San Diego. We have a new team coming, the Alliance of the American Fleet. Football, the Fleet. Yeah. AAF is coming. I believe that there must be an alternative league because here's the thing. When you have as many players in NFL training camps who get cut, that means that there becomes hundreds of NFL caliber football players mm -hmm. who are unemployed. And you still have hundreds of excellent college football players that never got into NFL training camps that are still hungry to play. Right. And so I think there must be a feeder league to the NFL. So I grew up just like you, a huge fan of the USFL. Right. Also that the, I always say like the, the difference between Julian Edelman and the fifth receiver is large. The difference between the fifth receiver and the guy who gets cut is not large. There are a ton of fifth receivers unemployed right now who would do very well to have a league. You know, I was a kicker. And um, I came to the San Diego Chargers in 1992, I want to say. And John Carney was the kicker. Mm -hmm. And I knew that they weren't going to carry two kickers. I was trying to get hurt to just get on injured reserve. Right, right, right. So funny. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. But um, there are lots of guys, and just in the world of kicking and punting and specialists, you know, dude, I promise you, you can go up here to Carlsbad to my friend John Carney. He's got 50 guys up there, all who are NFL caliber kickers. Right. But there's 32 jobs. Right. That's it. Right. Yeah, I agree. I'm with so, you. I love the USFL. Yeah, that's cool. So okay. do I. So, oh, yeah. So, um, so Donald Trump. Oh, yeah. So Trump basically, Trump was supposed to be an original owner. The league started in 1983. He was going to be, he agreed to be the owner of the New York, New Jersey franchise. Then the generals. Yeah, but they weren't called the generals at that point. They, were, were they, there was, they weren't. There was this early on. They just decided we're going to have these teams. Okay, got it. We need someone to buy the New York, New Jersey team. Oh, this guy, Donald Trump. Who is he? He's kind of an obscure real estate guy in New York. You know, but he has a lot of money. So they have an early owners meeting in San Francisco and they're waiting for Donald Trump to show up. And uh, they get this call. It's old school, you know, beige phone on a desk. They patch it through, put it on voicemail. Hey, guys. Uh, so, yeah, it's Donald. Um, I'm not going to be able to appear on. Uh, I'm not going to be able to come uh, and be part of the league. I'm really sorry. I got a lot of exciting stuff going on. I'm really sorry. Okay. Hope it works out for you guys. Okay, great. Bye. Click. What the hell just happened? Right. And that was that was Trump's early involvement. A guy named Walter Duncan from Oklahoma by, agrees to run the New York team. USFL has a relatively successful first year, but a very promising first year. Uh, this guy, Walter Duncan, doesn't want to own the New York team anymore. Donald Trump steps up and buys the team. In the lead up to buying the team, he's all about the USFL. This is great. I love what they're doing. There's so much potential here. Spring football. It's, it was a spring league, not a fall league. It's great. As soon as he gets a team, like almost literally as soon as he gets a team, we need to move to fall. We need to take the NFL on directly. Football, if, if God wanted football in the spring, he would have invented baseball, blah, 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 blah. And basically what he wanted was to force the NFL's hand. He had tried buying the Baltimore Colts in the early 80s and failed. He would later go on to try to buy the Buffalo Bills and the New England Patriots and fail. He wanted an NFL team. NFL was old money. 
It was the Roonies and the Maras and big old names. And he wanted in. And the NFL didn't want him. So he buys into the USFL. And not that long after, he calls Pete Rozelle, who was the NFL's commissioner at that time. And he asks if he'd be willing to meet in a suite at the Pierre Hotel in New York City, which Trump paid for. And the two of them meet. And Trump tells him, basically, I will throw this league under the bus to get an NFL team. I want in the NFL. That's why I'm even here. And Roselle says to him, as long as I'm involved in the NFL, as long as my heirs are involved in the NFL, you will never have a place in this league. Because he saw him for what he was, which is full of crap and a con man and a schemer. And Trump continued to see this sort of, uh, he continued to push. I want an NFL team. I want an NFL team. So ultimately what the USFL did is they sued the NFL. And he led the lawsuit. The whole idea was Donald Trump's idea. We're going to sue the NFL and either they're going to settle and absorb us or we're going to sue them and we're going to win. It was an antitrust suit. Uh, they said that the NFL monopolized television. We're going to sue them. We're going to win. And eventually there'll be an absorption. He just wanted, his whole thing was the Jets had moved to New Jersey. So now you had no team in New York City anymore. His idea was, I'm going to have a New York team. We're going to start out at Shea Stadium in Queens. Ultimately, they're going to build a Manhattan Stadium. And I'm going to have the New York NFL team. That was his plan all along. And I realized when I was working on this book, it was never, ever, I didn't know this beforehand, about the USFL. Never. It was always about the NFL for him. So how did you find that out well first of all what i learned uh, well first of all p roselle testified about it now which isn't enough right p roselle testified about this meeting and trump at all trump testified one thing roselle testified the other what trump testified was utterly unrealistic he testified that p roselle said to him i will give you an nfl team if you help ruin the usfl i interviewed a ton of usfl owners guys also from the NFL who said that was utter BS. There's no possible way Pete Rozelle was going to just say to some guy, we'll give you an NFL team. Hey, then I met guys who were involved in the meeting. Um, I met someone who accompanied Trump to the meeting. So I literally got information from a person who was there. Um, that lined up exactly with what, what Pete Rozelle was saying. Um, and then I interviewed other owners who talked about sort of uh, what Rozelle was doing, what Trump was doing, and, and it just all checked out. So you said that you feel like you have a unique perspective on Trump having done all the research for this book. Yeah. And here we sit today, like I said, 30 miles north of what's going on and how it's being portrayed and who, which side is right. And I'm just when you say you have a unique perspective on Trump, what do you what do you think about? All right. So it's just really interesting. I kept screaming during that. I wrote a lot of the research for this book and during the right, campaign right? It was during the campaign. Yeah. Kept screaming to my wife all the time. I was like, past is prologue. I kept saying that, past is prologue, past is prologue. Past is, is prologue. Past is prologue. It, it's one of my favorite sayings. It was basically, you can, you can tell everything that's happening now from what happened in the past. And with Trump, it's one after another. I'll give you an example, a perfect example. He, um, you never heard that saying, right? No, I'm yeah, past is prologue. It's one of my favorites. And um, Trump says to Trump uh, at one point, he owns the Generals, and in 1984, the quarterback is Brian Sipe. You remember Brian Sipe? Not, wait a second. Not only do I remember Oh, Brian San Sipe, Diego guy. San Diego guy. He's the quarterback's coach at the high school that my son just graduated from. Wow. Yeah, and he was the quarterback's coach at San Diego he State. He sure was. Yeah, so Brian Sipe's a San Diego legend. Yeah. Yeah, so keep going. And the 1980 NFL MVP with the Cleveland Browns. Right, that's right. Undersized quarterback, mm -hmm. good player. Uh, 1984, Trump buys the Generals. He signs Sipe as his quarterback. Sipe is has a pretty good year. They don't have great talent, but he has a good year. I think he threw 17 touchdowns, 15 interceptions, whatever. And then Trump decides he's going to draft, uh, he's going to get uh, Doug Flutie out of Boston College. Flutie just won the Heisman Trophy. And Trump makes him an offer to be the highest paid player in professional football, which is laughable. Um, 
He was a five nine quarterback. <laughs> NFL draft. He's probably a fifth or sixth round pick. Yeah, and but come on, Trump was sure uh, he wanted the attention, he, and he was he was a media guy yes. before he there was media available. Hundred yes. percent. He didn't know much about football, but he knew about headlines. Okay, he signs Doug Flutie to this contract, and he tells his people with the generals because he signed him this outlandishly large deal. It was a six year, eight point something million dollar deal, which at the time was huge. And he says, "We're going to sign Doug Flutie, but the rest of the league is going to pay his contract." And he sends a letter that I have. He sends a letter to the other owners and to the commissioner of the NFL, Harry Usher. I am of doing the NFL or the no US the US of, US of, okay. Excuse me, Harry Usher. And he says, "I am doing you all a huge favor by signing Doug Flutie, and I expect all of you to pay a portion of his contract." And I'm researching this, and I'm like, "This is the Mexico Wall before the Mexico Wall. This is the exact <laughs> same." I'm not even like, "It's going to be great, right? It's going to be great. It's going to be great. You're going to pay for it. He's going to be great." He did, and. I, I need to show you the letter. I don't have it here, but I, I posted on Twitter where he, he actually says, you can already see the dividends of Doug Flutie signing on the league. I did this for you. I mean, it was laughable. The dividends are this. It was actually funny. The Birmingham Stallions and the New Jersey Generals opened the 84 season in Birmingham. They drew about 68,000 fans. Oh, wow. The next year, they opened 85 season with Doug Flutie at quarterback. Same venue. They drew about 37,000 fans because at this point, the league was starting to crumble because of the move to fall, which is all because of Trump. So when he said like the immediate dividends, it was utter nonsense. The other, again, like when people say like he would never collude with Russia, I'm like he literally met with the commissioner of the rival league to say he would throw the league he's in under the bus. So don't tell me there's no collusion. Other stuff like exaggerations out the, out the you know, gazoo. Like he, um, he talked about when he pushed for the move to fall, he talked about repeatedly, there's amazing TV deals waiting for us in the fall. I have already talked to NBC, ABC, CBS, or all these deals waiting for us. Uh, we're going to make millions of dollars. It's going to be the greatest thing ever. <laughs> it was all nonsense. It was all BS. He did go to the other t- to the TV network heads, and they all said, "No, we don't want we don't want the US of L in the fall. The NFL owns fall. We don't we don't want this." It's going to be great. It's going to be big. It's just like example after example after example of him using the same techniques he uses now that he used then. And he bullies people in the, oh, I'll give you another one. Great one. John Bassett was the owner of the uh, Tampa Bay Bandits. The letter in the front, this letter right here, the front page of the book is a letter that I found that Donald Trump wrote to John Bassett, right? And so John Bassett was the owner of the Tampa Bay Bandits. And he was the one guy who would stand up to Trump. And he said to Trump repeatedly, um, we are not moving, moving to fall is suicide. We can't do this, we gotta stay the course, keep keep payrolls down, et cetera, et cetera. And um, Trump was like, Trump basically, they got in all these fights. And wait, I just wanna read, there's a paragraph here, it's the best thing ever. There's a letter John Bassett, owner of the Tampa Bay Bandits, wrote to Donald Trump, uh, August 16th, 1984, Tampa Bay Bandits letterhead. This is a great paragraph. You're bigger, younger, and stronger than I, which means I'll have no regrets whatsoever punching you right in the mouth the next time an instance occurs where you personally scorn me or anyone else who does not happen to salute and dance to your tune. I really hope you don't know that you're doing it, but you are not only damaging yourself with your associates, but alienating them as well. Think before you shoot, and when you do fire, stick to the message without killing the messenger. And then the best thing ever he writes, kindest personal regards, John Bassett. (laughs) And so John Bassett is the one guy standing up to Donald Trump, right? How old do you think Trump is at this time? I'm just He's 37. 37 yeah. years old. He's yeah. 37 yeah. and he's walking around like a tyrant yes. back then. Yes. Wow. Tyrant. Wow. Wait, so Bassett is standing in his way. He's the one guy standing up to Trump. Um, John Bassett ends up getting uh, being diagnosed with brain cancer. He has two, two, two spots on his brain. Turns out to be cancer. 
puts him out of commission. Trump walks all over him, walks all over him. It is John McCain 30 years before John McCain. But John McCain was a one guy willing to stand up to Donald Trump in the GOP, just like John Bassett was a one guy in the, and as soon as John Bassett died, as soon as John McCain died, it was callousness and it was, I'm just running all over this. Is the same stuff 30 years later. Well, um, that really shouldn't be shocking to anybody, should it? No. Because for you, the book that you've written, the eighth one of your career, is the same stuff you were writing about 30 years ago when you were in high school. Ah, yeah, it's funny. Right? But, yeah, well, I wrote, um, I love the USFL. I like, I love the USFL. And, uh, I mean, the story I read about you was that you had written a paper, probably your senior year of high school, uh-huh. that was supposed to be a 20 page paper. And you said to your teacher, Hey, I want to write about the USFL, USFL. And he shockingly said, Okay, go for it. And your paper turned from 20 pages to 40 pages. Yeah. And now here you are, essentially 30 years later, mm-hmm. taking a project that you started as a 17 year old kid yeah. and completing it now. So, so for a guy who was, doing this 30 years ago yourself i mean i, w- I wouldn't say i was doing this it was no, just a crappy, you paper. Like yeah. a crappy paper but it was still the content that you were interested yeah. in yeah. <laughs> it was only a b plus yeah, yeah. well it turned into an a plus yeah i, I tell you <laughs> um but trump was doing the same stuff back then too but i didn't know i was a kid and i didn't realize it back then i in fact the funny thing about trump with the us of l if you played for him or if you were a new jersey generals fan like i was you loved him because uh he was paying his players where a lot of the teams weren't um, you were flying first class, you were getting fed well, you were getting treated well. He cared about his players. He went after Lawrence Taylor, he went after Don Chula, he went after Mark Gasno, he went, went after Randy White, he went after Warren Moon. Like he did want to build. So within the confines specifically of the New Jersey Generals, he was a good owner, but he was poisonous to the league. It's so interesting because I think of Donald Trump back in, in those days, um, again, as kind of a teenager and somebody um who was looking at football as a possible you know life i mean this was you know before i was going on to play college football or anything but i love this notion of an alternative league and um when i think of trump in those days and the only reason i can think of trump in those days is because i mean he's been on our radars practically our entire lives because i didn't realize he was so young back then 37 but you know he's owning the taj mahal in atlantic city he's um, hanging out right he's hanging out with mike tyson and promoting mike tyson fights i mean i i definitely think of him back then as somebody who was very much a part of the world of sports yeah i would say the usfl was really the gateway and then he really got into boxing uh, yeah, he became this ubiquitous figure where his name was everywhere. And if it wasn't football, it was boxing. He was always trying to buy a team. Um, he latched himself on to Don King in many ways. He latched himself on to Mike Tyson in many ways. A little bit of Larry Holmes at the end of his career, probably. Um, yeah, but he would, you know, he's one of the great marketers in the history of this country. Certainly the modern history of this country. I mean, he's one of the great marketers of all time. If He, he actually fascinates me as a character Mm -hmm. because um, it's kind of like the, the old Eddie Murphy bit where, um, where uh, Jesse Jackson is running for president Mm -hmm. and he says, Oh, we're going to just, you know, screw around and we're all going to vote for Jesse Jackson. Yeah, right, right. Because the next day they went, what he won. Right. Jesse won. It's kind of like the same thing. I feel like Donald Trump was such a famous personality when he was running. There were so many people who knew him as, you know, the guy the from the, the Donald, mm-hmm. you fired, right. you know, the, everybody knew, knew him as a personality. And I, you know, I think of him as a funny character, but, um, 
it's interesting to see what he how he behaves and to then to hear stories about how he behaved yeah. and how similar these things are, although the verticals have changed. It went from the USFL to the U.S. Well, you know, one of my favorite recent quotes, not recently said, recently learned, was Mark Twain, where he said, it's, it's, it's much easier to force someone than to convince them they were fooled. And I feel like that's a very good thing going on right now, where, I mean, Donald Trump sold something. He sold that image that you're fired. You know, there was a, an amazing New York Times piece that I, I don't think one of his followers read, but how he, you know, gained his fortune. And it's actually laughable. How is that? He got it from his dad. Like he got, he's, he's always sold the fiction that he got a million dollars from his dad and he built this all from a million dollars. New York Times did this really detailed, amazingly meticulously sourced reporting piece where basically he inherited tons of money, tons and tons and tons and tons of money. Um, much of it misspent. And he was allowed to make these mistakes because he had tons and tons and tons of money. But we, you know, at least his followers think of him as this, you know, feisty, cagey, keen businessman. I always think like, what must people like Bill Gates or Mike Bloomberg, guys who actually sort of are businessmen, think of this guy? They must just think this is how, how have you fallen for this? this is ridiculous. So. so there are gonna be people who will listen to this and, and, you know, there is such a, there is a great, huge pro-Trump part of America mm-hmm. that will say, okay, but hold on a second. You know, he inherited all this money from his father. Um, he could have just lived the playboy lifestyle and just taken that money and played golf and screwed around. He didn't have to continue to build with that money. What do you think about that? I mean, I think of it this way. Like, that's all great, right? This is what I always say, I re- and I really mean this. I was in New York. I was young during the Central Park Five. Do you know this, mm-hmm. the Central course, Park Five? Yeah. Where he, after these five African-American kids were proven innocent, he took out an ad still calling for the death penalty. Um, Donald Trump spent four years insisting that the 44th president of the United States was a Kenyan-born Muslim. Not only that, he had people on the ground with proof, proof in Hawaii who are going to show us some amazing things. Like, I don't care what you've built. I don't care. You know, like, I'm a, I'm a fairly liberal human being. You don't really? <laughs> but I think John Kasich <laughs> is great. You know, like, I think... I've gained more respect for the way George W. Bush has handled himself out of office, you know, and sort of, and you're like, you know what? I just think this man is a sinister, vile human being. It has nothing to do with politics. It truly doesn't. It has to do with a lifetime of lying. Would you, would you have felt this way? Um, had you not written this book? Like, like, cause you know, things about, it gave me a head start. Yeah. Cause, cause (laughs) if anybody reads this book, what, what, what will they think? Or what are you trying to convey? about Donald Trump in this book, if anything. I'm not. I, the book is about the U.S. I always yeah. say, like, this book has literally zero to do with him being the 45th president. Mm-hmm. I, start, I, I wanted to write it 10 years ago. I kept getting told, no, 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 no. The only reason I got this book deal is I did my, my the book before that was a Brett Favre biography. The only way I got this book deal is um, I had a bunch of people wanting the Favre book, and I said, um, I'll only do it if you give me USFL. And if Houghton Mifflin was nice enough to give me a USFL deal for horrible money. So, um, what do you mean horrible money? Worst I, money I've ever made in my career. I'd like to just ask you, cause I mean, I, I could hear Trump stories all day long and yeah. I could love to hear, you know, that, that he was this guy back then. Uh-huh. But I also really would like to hear a little bit about publishing. Yeah. Um, so you had already had a successful career as a writer for sports illustrated mm-hmm. and lots of other publications mm-hmm. and you started writing books, obviously. Mm-hmm. 
and you're saying that the Favre book was popular and this one wasn't, and you weren't going to give somebody the Favre book without taking this one too? No, I'm saying the idea, all right, I had multiple, I had first come up with the idea of a USFL book about a decade ago. I said, I want to write this. I want to write it. My agent is great, but he, he, and he took the idea around and he said to me, quote, nobody wants an effing USFL book. <laughs> so I gave it up for a while. I just kind of forgot about it. You know, you're building a career. And the last book before this was Gunslinger. It was about Brett Favre. And I had a, I wrote a proposal for it, and I had a, a multiple publishing houses bid on it. So they all put in their bids to your agent, and usually you pick the highest one or who's going to be the best. Is the book written at this point, or is it just No, it's just two proposals. I wrote a proposal for Gunslinger, and then I wrote a proposal for this at the same time. I have a quick question. Yeah. What if, what if somebody says, okay, listen, we like Gunslinger. We like this Favre thing mm-hmm. that you're going to do. Mm-hmm. How um, are, are you concerned about gaining access to Favre at all? No. Is he critical to the book? Like now? No, I mean as you're. I didn't even. It. I write the proposal. I don't even reach out. Got it. I do it after I after I do it. I'm just like I'm just going to go straight ahead. Okay. I have a good story about that, but I'll tell you. But so I wrote um I wrote two proposals. Hod Mifflin, another company, bid on Favre. I went to Hod Mifflin. I really like the editor Susan Canavan, and I said, I really want to write this USFL book. I would take less money from you to do Favre if you give me a deal for the USFL. Eh, no, I don't know. Eh, man, I was like, come on. So uh, she ended up doing it. And I got worse money for Favre than I was going to get from someone else. But I got enough money to do this book where I could take a year. I usually take two to three years. I took a year to do this book. But, um, and the day I got the DR, I was like, boom. And I was on it. And I, I interviewed about 430 people over eight months. You know, just dogged, dogged, dogged. And that's how I wrote it. How much would you say, I've never asked anybody this because I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about it. How much would you say it cost you? to write this book if you had to go out and spend all that time that's interesting probably travel mm-hmm. accommodations meals yeah et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. how much do you think it cost you to go out and interview 400 plus people and then spend all your time and then edit it and so on and so forth how much did this book cost to make not you? that much because i only did one trip for this book actually i did two trips one ed luther former san diego charger quarterback coincidentally lives in my town so we met at starbucks the other, the only other book there was a only guy there was a guy named Greg Fields, a defensive lineman who yeah. I had to find. I got to talk about this. Oh guy. yeah, and I took my son on a road trip <laughs> to San Francisco. Okay, not we too stayed much. in a hotel for two nights. Otherwise, the main expense is actually pictures. Authors, I don't know if like Michael Lewis and Stephen King do, but I do. Stephen King's a bad example, but fiction. <laughs> but I have to buy the photos, uh-huh. so that gets really expensive. Where it can be up to two hundred a photo. Um, 300 a photo sometimes. Well, the reason I'm asking is because when you say that, that you took less money yeah. and this was not good money for yeah. you, um, what's the upside for an author like yourself? I mean, is it is it sales thereafter? Because this is, if this is a passion project for yeah. you um, and you, you were willing to take less money but you took the time, yeah. you still got a wife and kids sure. and a house and everything else. Um, the upside is we have a bad financial year. <laughs> no, I'm being serious. That's basically what it is. We have a bad financial year. And yeah. you, the thing is, though, what you're always hoping for with books is so I'm all like I'm working on a book right now mm-hmm. about the Shaq Kobe era Lakers, right? Mm-hmm. I was working on it while this book came out. So there's always this crossover. There's always 17 things moving at once. This one will be coming out in paperback when Shaq Kobe comes out in hardcover, probably. So there's always different overlapping projects at the same time. It's the only way I can make money in this business. How many people buy hard copies, paperbacks, or do it electronically? So it depends on the book, and it depends on the time period. I mean, my first book was called The Bad Guys One. It was about the 86 Mets. Maybe it sold 100,000 copies, which is a lot, actually. Yeah, it sounds like a lot. Yeah, and that was probably mostly uh, hardcover. 
There was no, I don't think that, I, that was 2003. Right. So I don't There's know no, we're not, we're not nearly where we are today. Right. I would say now the breakdown is, um, it's just a guess. I would say 30%, 30%, and then the rest 40% would be online digital. Yeah, online wow. digital. I think I could be off a little bit. But. So, so how's the book doing? Is it doing great. Well? It yeah, is made the New York times list. I mean, it's like, so this is my, it was like a little bit of like, an F you to everyone who said, don't write right. this book yeah, and like, it's not going to sell, but I've never busted my ass promoting a book more than this ever. Well, listen, here's the thing. Everybody wants a tell all. Everybody wants to hear the real inside stuff. You just mentioned this guy fields that you took your son to go visit. Mm -hmm. There's a, an amazing story about this guy who probably anybody listening does not know this guy's name, yeah. but he's one of the all time legendary characters. If you're going to go follow the history of the USFL, right? He's my favorite guy I've ever found. Yeah. Probably. Tell me, tell me about this guy. All right, so I'm actually around here in San Diego, and I interviewed former UCLA quarterback Tom Ramsey. I don't know if you remember Tom Ramsey. Mm -hmm. He played at UCLA, and then he played for the LA Express. He, very early on in this reporting process. And Tom's like, you need to find big paper. Big paper. Big paper. We had this guy on our team, big paper. He was insane. You need to find him. His name was Greg Fields. I was like, do you know where he is? No idea. And he tells me, basically the story is, there's this guy, Greg Fields. He was a defensive lineman at Grambling. 1979, rookie year of Baltimore Colts. He gets a nickname, Big Paper, because he makes almost no money, and he barks at the, the highest paid players. He'd be like, hey, Big Paper, you're the Big Paper boys, and they started calling him Big Paper. He made, I think, $30,000 as a rookie with the court. He's Big Paper. He gets cut by the courts after a year. He's in camp with the Atlanta Falcons. The Falcons cut him. He refuses to leave. He literally is like, F you, I'm not leaving. They have to get an armed security guard to walk up to the hotel with the coach and knock on his door and be like, Greg. We have a guy here with a gun. You need to leave now. He's like, okay, I'm leaving. He leaves. Was the guy carrying the gun prepared to shoot? No, I'm sure he wasn't. Kill? He was like, you know, <laughs> local police sheriff. You know, like the gotcha. local sheriff from yeah. Gwinnett County in Georgia. I don't know if they were sending in SEAL Team yeah, 6 no, to go yeah, get this right, guy. Right, right. No, no, no. Um, that'd be funny, though. Um, <laughs> he signs with the LA Express. Yeah. Free agent. Makes a team. Plays 1983. First year. Good year. John Hadle takes over as a coach. Legendary Charger quarterback. Yeah, right. Takes over as a coach. He's like, training camp, he's going to cut Greg Fields. Assistant coach is like, please don't. You may want to be careful. That's eh, fine. I've cut guys before. You know, Hato at this point is only like 45. He's not that old. You know, about, I can handle this. Send Greg in. Eh. Now, what he didn't know, Greg Fields, the day before his best friend, Nate Burleson's father, Al Burleson, oh, wow. was a defensive back in the US of Al, got cut. And Fields was pissed. He's by like, the LA Express? Yeah, by the LA Express. Got it. I actually talked to Nate. Nate had no idea about this story. I was on the NFL Network. His mind was blown by this story. It was, I was like, it's all because of your dad. Al Burleson's cut. Greg Fields is livid. He's like, they better effing not cut me today because there's going to be civil war around here. <laughs> a civil war? They call in. Hadel's like, uh, send Greg in. Fields comes in. Literally, desk, right? You know how it is. Greg, you know, you've really been a good part of this team, but blah, blah, blah. Greg Fields reaches across the desk, punches Hato in the face. Hato punches back. People come storming in. They're dragging Fields out. Fields, by the way, is like, I think he's 6'6", 290, whatever, big guy. I'm going to have to kill you. I'm going to kill you, blah, 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 blah. Okay. Fields is being pulled out. <laughs> he starts calling in death threats to the coach and the defensive coordinator, right? <laughs> Wait a second. They pull him out of the offices. Yeah, force him to leave. Okay. He leaves. He leaves. I'm going to start calling death threats to the team offices. I'm going to kill Fields, blah, blah, blah. He starts showing up at practices, just standing behind the fence like this. No way. Yes. He's, he's showing up at practice yes. with crazy eyes. Yes. Staring at John Hadle. 
the LA Express decide they have to take action, right? <laughs> For some reason, they decide not to go the police route. Bad attention, I don't know. <laughs> this is the best part. They call this guy Nelson Mercado, who is known in LA as a bodyguard. And he was working at the time in Las Vegas as Liberace's bodyguard. And they're like, we, we have an issue here. Would you be willing? He asked, I talked to Nelson. He asked Liberace for a leave of absence to come to L.A. and work for the Express. I guess the Express were going to pay him a lot of money. More than Liberace. Or I think Liberace was not on tour at that point and was okay in Las Vegas. Did the L.A. Express ask the rest of the league to help contribute to pay? They did not. Okay. They I just want to make right? sure that no. Trump was not involved at this Trump point. Trump was not okay. involved. Got it. That's funny. Um, he comes in, Nelson Mercado, and he tells me, Nelson was great. And he's like, he's like, it was the worst assignment of my life. He's like... I'm tr- we put a tracker on his car. I was tracing his phone calls. I was following him around. He's like, he had a gun in his trunk. He would show up at games. He would be threatening the coach. He'd be threatening the defense coordinator. Blah, 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 blah. Okay, this is going on for a while. And then because the USFL is the USFL, the best thing ever happens. Now everyone knows Greg Fields is crazy, but the San Antonio gunslingers need defensive line help. So they actually call and sign Greg Fields. <laughs> So he goes to play. Now, he flies to San Antonio. Nelson Mercado is the happiest guy in the world. This task is done. I can go back to Liberace. And Wait, what about John Hadle? I bet he was pretty happy, John too. John Hadle, very happy. Yeah. He told, Hadle, I actually talked to Hadle about it. He's like, yeah, the guy was crazy, blah, blah, blah. So this guy is signed by San Antonio, and he flies there. And when he shows up in San Antonio's offices, the coaching staff is all there to greet him, wearing helmets and pads as a joke, <laughs> which Fio saw was very funny, to his credit. So he plays for San Antonio. San Antonio Gunslingers are the best team in the history of sports. The, they're coached by, this is a true story, they're coached by a guy, Gil Stanky, who had seven fingers because he lost three in a lawnmower accident. He was in the early stages of onset dementia, of dementia, and he sat in these stands. He would coach from these stands because he thought it gave him a better view with a walkie-talkie. No way. True story. So he signed, Not the press box. No, stands. Sat in his, he used to go to Texas a and that's where he coached from, and he continued to do that with the Gunslingers. Rick Neuheiser was a quarterback. He's like, we had this coach who coached from the stands. He's like, I don't even... <laughs> seven fingers. Nice guy, but... <laughs> Seven-fingered seven coach fingers. coaching from the stands. With early dementia. Got it. Yeah, it's the best. So, um, <laughs> so funny. He'd be like... He'd be like... The coach would be like in meetings. He'd be like, all right, we got the Predators today. And he'd be like, uh, there is no team, the Predators. Nah, the... Gamblers. Anyway, so Greg Fields is on this team. The owner, Clint Mangus, stops paying players. And it's it's a, night, it's a final season, and Greg Fields is not getting paid. And one day, he follows Clint Mangus to his house oh my God, with a baseball owner. bat no way. in his car. And Clint Mangus gets out, little guy. Greg Fields gets out, big guy, with a baseball bat. And he goes, um, Clint Mangus is like, hey, Greg. He's like, listen. I see where you live because you live in a mansion called the Magic Kingdom with wild animals walking over the front yard. True story. <laughs> no goes, way. Yeah. I see where you live. I know you got money. I want to get paid. Clint Mangus is like, uh, wait right here. He goes inside, comes back out, uh, $10,000 in cash. No says, way. Says, actually, I take that back. It was 15000 He says, uh, is this good? We good? Fields is like, we're good. Drives off. Never seen again. Now, I know I have to find Greg Fields, but I can't. I call Grambling guys. Wait, excuse me. Are yeah. you telling me that Fields takes the money and drives off and does not go back to the team Mm-mm. and say, hey, I'm going to finish the season. No. Hey, guys, guess what? I went over with a baseball bat. I got 15 grand in cash. You guys should do the same thing. Mm-hmm. Or better yet, I'll tell you what. I'll tell you what. I'm an, I'm an industrial kind of guy. Okay. I'll go back. I'll take all his cash. 
I'll pay all you guys. I'll take a, I'll cut for myself. And he, he just literally checked out and left. Left. But I, in fact, I'm going to do a sidebar here real quick. <laughs> the defensive backs coach for the Gunslingers was a guy named Bill Bradley who played with the, not the Senator Bill Bradley, but former Eagle defensive back. After the final game in San Antonio Gunslinger history, he had not been getting paid. He rented two enormous trucks. The Gunslingers played at a stadium called Alamo Stadium. It was a, a high school, converted high school field. And to meet USFL minimum stadium requirements, capacity requirements, they set up folding chairs, 6,000 folding chairs. Bill Bradley paid off the guy who ran stadium security, backed these trucks up to the stadium, loaded every folding chair onto the trucks, drove to, drove to El Paso, and sold the chairs for $8 a pop. That's how he ended up getting paid. He stole the chairs in the stadium. No yeah, way. The ever. defensive backs coach. Yeah, Bill I'm going to steal the chair. loved about Jeff Perlman. It wasn't just talking about Trump, which I found fascinating. It wasn't just the crazy interesting stories about the USFL player going to the owner's house and essentially hijacking 15 grand from the guy with a baseball bat. It wasn't just the stories of the USFL and about the book that Jeff has just written. What I really loved was hearing about how to go about publishing, um, the breaks that he caught along the way, how even as a journalist, he's thinking as a business guy. I, I found all of that stuff fascinating, and I really appreciated Jeff driving down from Orange County and hanging out in my office in San Diego. And by the way, if you go on to Instagram and you follow me at Scott Kaplan and you go on to my story, that entire interview is there for you because uh, we recorded it on Instagram Live. So thanks, everybody, for being here this week. Um, this was a really, really fun interview to do, and I think that Jeff Perlman is going to become a regular on the Scott and BR radio show because I think he's really terrific. So listen, have a great week ahead. Uh, thanks for sticking with me. I know I took a little bit of time off in between the Rourke Denver podcast just a couple weeks ago and where we are today. But thanks for being with me. I hope everybody had a wonderful holiday as we get ready to start this holiday season now into December. And uh, thanks for being with me all year long. It always fascinates me when somebody sends me a message and goes, hey, I just listened to your interview with Corky Miser. And that was six months ago, or, hey, I just listened to the interview you did with your dad and your son for Father's Day. And, you know, at the time, I, I didn't know if I should even release that. And, and so people are going back and they're, they're listening to content that we've already produced. And you can always do that on my website, scottkaplanmedia.com. And lastly, just last thing, for those of you that are following on Twitter at Scott Kaplan and you guys are hitting the links to my debate platform cited, dude, I so appreciate it because you don't understand something. We're a small organization, 15,000 Twitter followers, some Facebook followers and some Instagram followers. And, and we're putting this stuff out because we're testing the software. And so we appreciate everybody who is on those platforms or who listens on radio or listens to the podcast who is interested in helping build a new community. Because I have grown to despise Twitter and I want to create a community where people can have civil conversation, sometimes heated, sometimes not so much heated, but respectfully because everybody's names are connected to their comments. So thank you for those of you that are helping uh, test the software at cited.co, cited.co. No M, just saved you a whole bunch of time. You don't have to type the M. Okay, thanks again to the Brigantine family of restaurants. As always, much love. Thank you to my friends from Callaway Golf. I was visiting them earlier this week up in their headquarters in Carlsbad, so always great to be with them. And, and finally, thanks to the Gorilla Movers guys. They make moving easy, gorillamovers.com. That's it for this week. And until next time, have a great week, everybody.
great guest that was interviewed by Scott on the weekly solo podcast that on every Tuesday drops. Keep it locked and make sure after you listen, share the latest volume, tune in to the next edition.